0: This is number one of a series of ten, and this one is entitled, Christ the Way. Our text is Psalm 77, 13. It's a beautiful text, for it tells us the way of the Lord is in the sanctuary. And as we begin, I would like to compare this plain statement from God's Word with the additional instruction from God's last day prophet I have four short paragraphs that help us to understand God's way in the sanctuary in great controversy 488 are these words the sanctuary in heaven is the very center of Christ's work in behalf of man you see our salvation is now centered in the sanctuary in heaven where christ is and then comes evangelism 221 the correct understanding of the ministration in the heavenly sanctuary is the foundation of our faith some years ago i was in new york city and i was watching through a whole in the fence at the foundation work of a great skyscraper. Hundreds of feet down into the solid ground they were making a foundation and we are told that the sanctuary is the foundation of our faith. And then in Volume 5 of the Testimonies 520 the sacred work of Christ for the people of God going on in the heavenly sanctuary should be our constant study that's why I prepared these 10 simple studies to help us understand what God is now doing and lastly great controversy 589 the intercession of Christ in man's behalf in the sanctuary above is as essential to the plan of salvation as was his death upon the cross. That's a tremendous statement. You know, we glory with Paul in the cross of Jesus Christ, the Son of God dying for us, but up in heaven there is also an atonement being made now in the sanctuary for us, preparing us for heaven. With this as the beginning, I would like to begin this sermon with some wonderful good news, and that is this, God loves you and he loves me. In fact, he loves us so much that he wants us to come and to live with him. You know, many times when we see friends that we like real well, we say, Why don't you come and stay a couple of days? I've got a spare bedroom. Come and stay a week, a few days. But that's not what you mean when you say, Come and live with me. That's something that is permanent. And God will never be satisfied until we dwell in heaven permanently with him. That is why he said these words in John 14, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there ye may be also. And so God is just waiting for the day when we can live with Him in a love experience forever. Now, this brings us to our very first big question Why are we not in heaven today? Why has Jesus not come back? Could it be a problem of distance? I think not, for Christ has often come to this earth. You recall that he spent seven days here during the creation week. And he often came and visited with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And he used to actually take walks with Enoch. And he visited old Abraham. And ate with him at his tent and then he talked with Moses on Mount Sinai and for years he abode in the cloud above the sanctuary out in the desert then we read of Jesus coming to this earth as a babe in Bethlehem and he lived with man for 33 years so you see from the scriptures that Christ has often been here many times. Distance is no barrier with Christ. Well let's look at it another way. Could it be that it is a problem of time? Maybe it's not the time yet for Christ to return. However, nearly every sign Christ predicted of the end time events has already taken place or is actually taking shape before our very eyes. Even the skeptics and the atheists and the politicians, everyone agrees that something great is about to happen. So, what then is the problem? Why hasn't Christ come? I believe I can simply state the cause in these words god has a big problem and what is that problem how can he save the sinner without saving the sin how to destroy sin without destroying the sinner putting it very bluntly how can god get rid of sin without getting rid of you and me How can he take us to heaven without taking infectious sin with us, which would spread death throughout the entire universe? Let me tell you, God has a big, big, a very big problem. Now some of our theologians claim that they have the answer to God's problem, for they are like the indulgent parents who believe that their children will outgrow their evil ways when they become adults if we can just give them enough time and show them enough love. But we all know that just one look at the neighborhood reveals that they are dead wrong. In the same manner, there are some theologians who are teaching that if we will just preach enough love, 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 so that the people believe that God is a God of love, of grace and forgiveness, and that he is too good to demand total obedience, that this is the answer, that Christ has provided unconditional salvation at the cross. These theologians say, why be concerned if we continue to sin, after all. The sinner was born to sin, and it is impossible in this life to stop sinning. Now this is what the theologians are trying to tell us today. They say that sin is God's problem, it's not the sinner's problem. That somehow, when Jesus comes the second time, He will give every sinner instantly a new heart that will never sin again. And thus the sin problem will be solved. Don't you believe it? This is a teaching that is a concoction of the devil himself. You see, if Christ was to perform such a miracle as this of transformation, when he comes, then the atheist would be right in blaming God for all the evil that's in this earth, because God could have made his Christian followers instantly sinless whenever they responded to his love. But don't you be misled by these false new theology teachings, for God does have a way to solve the sin problem. And that way is found within the sanctuary, through the blood, the precious blood of the Lamb, as administered within the heavenly sanctuary in heaven. You remember Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if you follow him into the sanctuary, we will understand this way. So this is indeed good news, for Jesus Christ can solve the sin problem, making eternal life possible for every sinner who will accept Christ's sacrifice and follow Christ's intercession for us within the sanctuary. Habakkuk, one of God's faithful prophets, wrote in the second chapter, verse 2, Write the vision, make it plain. And this is exactly what God has done. He has made the way of the salvation clear and simple by means of the sanctuary. For this divine system explains how God can separate sin from the sinner and destroy the sin and yet save the sinner. Praise God, for He tells us, Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Now let's take a look at the scriptures that tell us that there is a sanctuary in heaven and that there is a sanctuary, there was one in this earth. First, let's read from Hebrews, the 8th chapter, verses 1 to 5. You will notice that he's talking about a sanctuary in heaven. Now, of the things which we have spoken, this is the Son. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, He would not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. As Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, For see, said he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. And then when we turn to the ninth chapter, we read about a earthly sanctuary in Hebrews 9, 1 to 4. Verily, the first covenant had also ordinance of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer, the ark of the covenant, overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. Now, since we've found in the New Testament that it declares there is a sanctuary in heaven and there was a sanctuary in this earth. Let's turn to the Old Testament and read about the sanctuary that was here on this earth. Exodus 25:8. Jesus said, Let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell among them. Now as you read the book of Exodus, you will discover that there was an outer court surrounding the sanctuary where the animals were brought to be sacrificed. This court contained the altar upon which the sacrifice was burned, and a labor for washing and purification. As to the sanctuary itself, It was composed of two apartments, the first called a holy place. It contained three articles of furniture, namely the candlesticks for light, the table of showbread, and the altar of incense. Stepping into the second apartment, which was called the most holy place, there was but one piece of furniture. This contained the most holy place. This was the most holy place, and it contained the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the Ten Commandments, covered by the mercy seat. Now, we are to learn how God solves the sin problem. You see, he can do this by saving the sinner and destroying the sin. But we must understand how he does this by what takes place within these two apartments of the sanctuary. In fact, there are three parts of the sanctuary system. There's the outer court. There is the holy place, and there is the most holy place. And we must understand that there are three separate acts that are performed, one in each. One in the outer court, one in the holy place, and one within the most holy place. As we study these three separate acts, we can learn how to cooperate with Christ in solving our sin problem, so that Christ can separate the sin from us, that we may eventually join our Savior in heaven and live with Him where there will be no more sin. What a wonderful place heaven will be! For we are told in Nahum, the first chapter, verse 9, affliction or sin shall not arise up the second time. I know our hearts are just longing to be with our Savior and live in such a place. But what makes this possible? The final act of separation of sin from the sinner does not take place at the cross. As the worldly churches all teach and believe, we find that the final separation of sin will take place in the second apartment of the sanctuary within the most holy place. This is why we read in Great Controversy page 489 the intercession of Christ in man's behalf in the sanctuary above is as essential to the plan of salvation as was his death upon the cross. For by his death he began that work which after his resurrection he ascended to complete in heaven. Nothing could be more clear that there is a work going on now that is essential for the atonement of our sins. But let us remember as we think of this and get the overall picture. The final separation from sin that takes place in the second apartment can never take place until the work in the first apartment is completed. And likewise, the work in the first apartment cannot take place until a special process of separation begins in the outer court at the altar of sacrifice so three steps are absolutely essential leading to the focal point ending in the most holy wherein is the ark of god containing the ten commandments which are covered by the mercy seat therefore it is of most importance to remember that these three separate steps or processes are necessary to separate sin from the sinner. Now, when God instructed Moses to build this earthly sanctuary, he commanded, make it after the pattern However, there was one exception. When it came to producing the law of Jehovah, God said, Moses, I'll do this. Notice his words. Exodus thirty-one eighteen, And he gave unto Moses, when he had made an end of communing with him upon Mount Sinai, two tables of testimony, Tables of stone, written with the finger of God. Everything found within the earthly sanctuary was made by man, except the Ten Commandments. These were written in stone by the immortal finger of God Almighty. Now the importance of this act is emphasized. For when Moses broke the tables of stone to show his displeasure of Israel's idolatry, God did not say, Moses, make another copy and put it in the ark. Oh no, God said, and I am reading now Deuteronomy 10, 1 and 2. The Lord said unto me, Hew thee two tables of stone like unto the first, and come up unto me into the mount, and make thee an ark of wood. And I will write on the tables the words that were in the first tables, which thou breakest, and thou shalt put them in the ark. So you notice it was God the second time who wrote them with his divine fingers. Thus the Ten Commandments are lifted up above the rest of the entire Bible for God himself wrote the Ten Commandments the rest of the some 66 books were written by holy men under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit but the Ten Commandments were written by God himself now why why did God choose to write the Ten Commandments with his own finger. Because God wanted no human element to in any way deface his divine law. For they are a beautiful copy of the law in heaven. So when we read of the Ten Commandments, we are dealing with the great original the law of God that is safely secured within the heavenly sanctuary above. You will recall that some 60 years after Christ was crucified and had risen and had returned to heaven, God opened the heavenly sanctuary for John to see in vision. And what did he see? He writes it down in Revelations eleven nineteen, 19. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in the temple the ark of the testament. So after the cross, all eyes are to focus on the heavenly sanctuary in which can be seen the law of God. And why was this? because God wants these who are living in the last days to know that there is a right and a wrong way. In Romans 3.20, we are told, Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. You know, I I somehow like Philip's translation. It reads like this. It is the straight edge of the law that shows how crooked we are. For the law is actually a transcript of the character of God. In that book, The Story of Redemption, page 19, we read that God speaking of his Ten Commandments, exalted them to be equal to himself. And then in Desire of Ages 308, speaking of this law of God, he said it is immutable as God's throne. And then she finally says of the Ten Commandments that they are, and I quote, a transcript of his character. And so when you consider and study the law of God, you are studying the very character of God himself. And this is why Isaiah exclaimed when he saw the Lord. He said, Woe is me, in Isaiah 6:5, I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And mine eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Someday, when we look into his face and see his purity and his holiness, we will then have a greater picture of what the law really stands for. Now, in the sanctuary, we are brought face to face with this law. For there it is in the ark, representing God's character, the divine rule of life. And in in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14, we have been commanded, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. And James makes it very clear in the book of James, the second chapter, verses 10 to 12, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that saith, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of Liberty. Now there is a penalty for breaking God's law. And that penalty is death. Ezekiel 18, 4, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. And as you go through the good book, you'll find this is brought out in other ways. Romans 6, 23, The wages of sin is death. And then in the third chapter, verse 23, all have sinned. And so we are all sinners. Now this brings us back to the sin problem, doesn't it? Since we have all sinned, how is it possible for God to cancel our sins and take us to heaven to live forever, instead of dying for our sins as the law demands how can he separate us from our sins get rid of the sin well let's go back to the first act or the first step in the process of the sanctuary system this was before performed in the sanctuary service which makes it possible to begin the separation of sin from the sinner. The first step begins in the court of the sanctuary. And we will let the word of God describe what takes place there. I'm reading from Leviticus, the fourth chapter, beginning with verse 27. And if any one of the common people sin through ignorance, while he doeth somewhat against any of the commandments of the Lord concerning things which ought not to be done and be guilty, or if he sin, which he hath sinned, come to his knowledge. Now you see, this man suddenly recognizes that he has committed a sin, he has broken the law of God. What shall he do? Then he shall bring his offering, a kid of the goats, a female without blemish, for his sin, which he hath sinned, or as you read on in Leviticus, sometimes they brought a heifer, sometimes they brought a lamb. And what did he do? And he shall lay his hand upon the head of the sin offering. Yes, and then what? And slay the sin offering in the place of the burnt offering and the priest shall take of the blood thereof with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering and shall pour out all the blood thereof at the bottom of the altar and reading down it says and the priest shall make an atonement for him and he shall be forgiven how Well, as you read verses 5 and 6 of the same chapter, it says, The priest that is anointed shall take of the bullock's blood and bring it into the tabernacle of the congregation. So he's going to carry this blood right inside now. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle of the blood seven times before the Lord before the veil of the sanctuary. Now, uh, let me discuss this in detail with you so you can follow it step by step. Here is a man who has sinned. He has broken the law. He deserves to die for his sin. But this man is convicted, and he repents, and he seeks forgiveness of the Lord. He wants to live. And God, in his great love for the sinner, has provided just the atonement that he needs. He has made a way of escape so that the sinner, by following three steps within the sanctuary process, can be separated from his sin, forgiven, and accepted before God as though the individual had never sinned wonderful amazing now the sinner must faithfully follow this divine plan if this is to be and he is granted such forgiveness and separated from his sin first a lamb must be brought to the court pardon me, must be brought to the court of the sanctuary as a sacrifice. Next, he must place his hands on the head of the lamb and confess his sin over its head. In doing this, he will transfer his sin to the lamb, which becomes his substitute. Now follow me closely. Then he takes this lamb, places it on the altar, and with his own hand, he takes a knife and cuts the throat of the innocent victim, taking its life for his sin instead of dying for his own sin. The blood is caught in a bowl and the priest takes the blood into the sanctuary's holy place and sprinkles it on the horns of the altar of incense now you ask why must the blood be taken into the sanctuary because the blood represents the life of the victim in leviticus 17:11 it states plainly the life of the flesh is in the blood and the life of the innocent victim must be presented before the Lord before the law to fulfill its requirement now at this point the guilty man has transferred his sin to the lamb The substitute has now become guilty so that the substitute must die because of the sin which was transferred to the lamb. Now I think you have a question. Isn't there any other way that God can separate sin from us? The answer? Absolutely not. For in Hebrews, the ninth chapter, verse 21, God states, All things are by the law purged with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Are you thinking now, carefully? You see, the substitute must die. And who must slay the substitute? The priest? No, absolutely not. The sinner must slay the substitute. Why? Because it is his sin that made the death necessary. For sin is death. Now, let's look at the reality of this plan of salvation. Who does the lamb represent? John the Baptist explained this in unmistakable words as Jesus came to him to be baptized. John said, speaking of Jesus, "Behold the lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world." And this is why Jesus came to this world. For the world, for the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, He came here to save us, to die for us. You see, since sin causes death, either I must die or my substitute must die and be killed by my own hand. This, then, is the first basic lesson we are to learn as we study about this sanctuary. We must comprehend and we must understand before we can follow our sin into the holy and finally into the most holy to be separated from us eternally. So please, let me enact once more this word picture. You see, by going over and over we make it simple so that we can understand here we see the sinner bringing a lamb for his sacrifice then he places his hands on the head of the lamb he confesses the actual sin thus he transfers his sin to the lamb now note carefully the sinner takes a knife and he Slays the innocent victim. Watch with me as the lamb experience experiences the death throbs and dies. The guiltless, dying for the sinner, dying because of another sin. And now quickly, look in faith to the Lamb of God. Jesus Christ dying on Calvary for our sins. Peter wrote about this in 1 Peter 2.24. It says, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. That we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes we are healed. What happened to that lamb on the altar? The lamb died. What did our sins do to Christ on Calvary? It took his life. You know, millions believe and know the historical fact of Calvary and they like to go to the Holy Lands and visit the very spot where Jesus died. But many of them never realize that it was their sin that crucified the Lamb of God. They have never comprehended what Zechariah wrote in chapter 12, verse 10. He said, I will pour out upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace. And then what would happen? They shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. And shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. So few today have ever caught the vision of personally going to Calvary and there picturing Christ dying on the cross in their place, and that it was their sin that took his life. Tell me, tell me honestly, has sin in your life made you feel guilty for the death of Christ? Have you cried out to the Lord Jesus, our great substitute, in repentance and in gratitude and in praising his name for providing a way in which sin could be transferred to him and thus separated from you? Tell me, perhaps an illustration here Of one of the saddest funerals I have ever conducted will help us to understand. In the casket lay the body of a very tiny boy, the only son of those grieving parents. This tiny tot had died by an accident which was caused by his father. You see, the father did not know that his small son had followed him into the garage. As the father got into his car, he backed out of the garage, and the child was killed instantly. The father had killed his son by accident, and I cannot describe the grief that I beheld in his face. But when you go to Calvary, and you behold Christ, the Lamb, dying this death, this death was not an accident. This death was by our own devilish sins. We slay him by our transgression of God's law. He is dying on the cross in our place as our substitute, bearing our sins. And when we fully realize the meaning of Calvary, we cannot help but cry out, O God, is this what I have done to your dear son? Is this the price of my salvation? Once again, tell me, if that father who by accident killed his little precious son should someday probably have another son, do you think that he will be more careful in the future when he backs his car out of the garage? Oh, you can be sure. You can be sure he will never want to repeat that mistake again. And so likewise, when we go to Calvary and see Jesus dying in our place, crucified for our sins your heart breaks for you know it was your sin that put him there and you never want to repeat that experience you never want to sin again you don't need anyone to beg you to stop sinning your very heart is broken over that sin instead you cry out oh god Take this sin away from me and give me such a hatred of this sin that I will never, never, never commit it again. May I ask you one more question? Do you have some particular sin that you need to bring to Jesus just now? Why not give it to him and ask him to make his death on Calvary? A sufficient reality and a reminder that you will never forget you see he loves you so much that he would willingly die for your sin again and again but this is not necessary for he died once he died for all sin all sins that are repented of and forgiven So let him separate you from your sin just now in total repentance. What a beautiful picture we're beginning to see in this study of the sanctuary. How atonement has been made for our sins in three separate places at the cross, in the holy, and in the most holy part of the sanctuary. Finally, at last, we can be forgiven and cleansed and accepted by God as though we had never sinned. Oh, praise his name. How beautiful thy way, O oh God, is in the sanctuary. And this is why we read in Matthew one twenty one: She shall bring forth a son And thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Thank God Christ can separate us from our sin and he can save us. Now please, don't miss the next presentation in this series of ten. The next one is entitled, Christ the Lamb. I'm sure you will receive a great blessing in listening to it. Let us pray. Loving Father, as we go to Calvary in our thoughts, and we see you dying in our place. Oh, praise God. Thank you, Jesus, for taking our sin. And our punishment that we might go free. Praise thy name, God. May we, be, may we be worthy of what you have done for us on Calvary's cross. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.